that culture, that that aspiration was like a kind of tonic in a way of almost a way of healing sort of those wounds, right? That I think a lot of young people feel where they feel that their freedom that their parents have notionally given them to define themselves is a kind of abandonment, right? It is a kind of being, a form of being marooned somewhere without a guide. Join the best in the movement. It's Conservative Conversations with ISI, educating for liberty since 1953. Welcome back. You're listening to Conservative Conversations with Johnny and Marlo. Nate is out today on the front lines reporting on the trucker protest in Canada, but we are joined by Michael Brendan Dougherty, a senior writer at National Review. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Thank you for having me. It's going to be a blast, I think. Today we're talking with Michael about a lot of different current events, many of which have been subjects of his writing recently, uh, such as his experience facing his children's school board over masking policies, technocracy and small R Republican governance, and class conflict and the Canadian truckers. But before we continue our interview, I'd like to thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations. This podcast is a production of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Our mission at ISI is to educate for liberty. If you'd like to help us in that mission, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts to help us reach more listeners like yourself. So, Michael, like I mentioned, you've been, I mean, we mentioned Nate is current. So Nate is currently on the front lines of the Canadian trucker protests, but you've been on the front lines of the school masking mandate fight in New York. And you wrote about it a few weeks ago after you attended a school board meeting and uh, you expressed your concerns there about masking children. So you also pointed out in your own reflections on what these types of interactions between parents and their children's educators have educated or have signified, which is by no means, you know, unique to your own experience. This has been something that frustration that parents across the country have highlighted. But you've also highlighted what you called like a populist chaos in these types of conversations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So could you talk about this from not only a perspective as a parent um, with young kids, but also as someone who has long observed shifting sociopolitical attitudes from, you know, having worked at TAC beforehand, now working in National Review and writing on, you know, these these contemporary issues facing uh, facing Americans and how that has shifted with different, uh, you know, political mores. Oh, that's, that's quite a lot. <laughs> I mean, I will say just like as background, you know, when I'm among the conservatives, even among my colleagues, I often feel my populism rising up within me uh, in rebellion. And then when I'm among the populists, I often see the wisdom of my conservative friends and colleagues. And that was illustrated in, in this conflict. I um, My children go to the local schools here where I live in New York, and they've been under these mask mandates for uh, two years now, almost. Uh, I mean, minus the remote school disaster uh, at the start of the pandemic. And um, you know, the uh, there's been controversy in New York about whether uh, this, the school mask mandate is even legal. And so what ended up happening is a, a New York Supreme Court judge threw out the mask mandate, and then it was reinstated on appeal uh, to the higher uh, in New York, the higher court is the Court of Appeals. So went up to the Court of Appeals. There was one day where legally uh, kids could go to school without masks, and some of my uh, daughter's friends did. Um, and then it was restored, but but it became obvious that this was something that could fall to, to the local level, um, down from the state level. 
Uh, and throughout this, the mask mandate has always been um, removed from local self-government, right? It has been, um, the school districts will, if you argue with them about it, historically, the last two years, they'd say, this isn't our decision. It goes through the county department of health, which goes through the state department of health, which is following the governor who is following CDC guidelines. And, you know, so essentially your, your quarrel is with Dr. You know, Walensky. And uh, Dr. Walensky's guidance is just being filtered down through all these levels of authority to you, which was enraging. And it makes, uh, makes you feel impotent as a citizen uh, and as a parent, um, because everyone is disclaiming authority in the institutions that actually are around you. But in this case, it looked like authority might pass to our school district and some other school districts locally have said they will go to mask optional policies once the authority is in their hands to do so. So I went to our school board meeting and I made my, uh, my case, my eloquent case, I thought, based on kind of mainstream science and data. Uh, I tried to pepper it with, you know, references to the Atlantic and other like respected institutions, no matter the political, you know, assuming the political valence of the school board leans a little bit to the left or liberal. And of course it was just silence because they weren't there to speak on to the people on mask mandates that night. They weren't going to address it. Um, and so the public comment period was then filled with all of these other parents who were, um, desperate to get masks off their children. And because they'd met this non-responsive board, often for months beforehand, before I got involved, they'd been driven to a theory of, um, of the mask mandates, that the mask mandate itself at a state level was not only illegal, but that everyone participating down level from it was doing something criminal that they were uh, imposing illegal edicts on children, that they were, uh, you know, that there, and there are, there are laws against enforcing fictitious laws, but that's not, that's not a a case that's going to fly in New York. Like there's not going to be a Nuremberg trial for school boards um, and school administrators But basically, like, this was a crowd um, almost prophesying the downfall of the school board and the school administrators. Um, There was almost, in some cases, almost a Pentecostal feel to the proceeding that um, the day of judgment is at hand and you can either get right with the Lord or you will fall with the wicked. Uh, and this was, you know, essentially that's what I meant by the populist chaos, because this was a, a political force that was democratic in its way, um, but it lacked leadership and it lacked knowledge. And so its words not only fell on deaf ears, but tended to also radicalize authority against it. And, and that is, I think, the dynamic we're seeing with um populism versus the establishment in our politics generally, right? Is the kind of this mutual radicalization where uh, traditional institutions um, 
either can't or won't serve their purpose or the public. And then the people rise up against them uh, in an effort to reform, but lacking intelligent leadership or uh, a clear direction, uh, they come across as extreme, noisome, and, um, you know, just obstreperous and, and an obstacle to good governance. So that, that's, that's what I saw. I mean, it, and, um, you know, it is a real fight, but it, it, it is, to me, it was a, almost a case for our, uh, a revival of, you know, what you would call constitutionalism, right? A revival of local government under the constitution, lawful local government, where I could remonstrate with a school board member in public and it makes a difference or it could make a difference. And, uh, and as long as it could, that would create the kind of political buy-in hopefully, uh, among the public to support this institution and not just, you know, kind of demonstrate and prophesy about its forthcoming downfall. Um, but yeah, it's, that is what it looks like when our, our institutions are deranged, right? Where um, by something like a state of emergency, when most people believe the emergency has long passed. Um, You know, I noticed that uh, President Biden was asked recently about mask mandates, and he said they probably, it's probably too soon. And the problem with saying that is that the burden of proof should, of course, be on the emergency measure, the, the mask, right? If it's probably too soon, well, then there shouldn't be a mask mandate at all, right? Then it's not a, that's a decision that should be given to the public. If it's not, it it should be an overwhelming, urgent emergency that creates this state of exception where you force people to do something they wouldn't normally do. Um, so anyway, that's, that's what I saw. I mean, I, Personally, I'm hoping that um, blue state governors who seem to be coordinating now to to end indoor mask ma- mandates for adults, that they'll all come around to endor- ending the school ones uh, in the next month. Uh, I think it'd be hard to keep them standing much longer because the anger really is brewing and it seems to be reflected in their political position in the polling. Michael, your your point on sort of, you know, how it made you feel seeing sort of legitimate, justified anger at, at uh, failure of institutions, but yet no constructive outlet or way to express it. It reminded me of something that Larry Arne from Hillsdale, who's one of our board members, said said to me recently that the rebellion is here, but which is a good thing, but the people need to be educated in order for it to flow in the, the proper channels. I, I'm curious kind of shifting a little bit to the topic of class, which is something you've touched on in your writing. You mentioned seeing this class division at the board meeting. I think the the trucker protest in Canada is another indication of the class tensions. Why does it seem like, you know, the mainstream media and even the left today, you know, really doesn't touch on the issue of class the way that they used to uh, years ago? And how do you think not only is class playing into these conflicts, but at what point did you did you in your own career start to see the issue of class shift from the left to the right? 
I mean, it was pretty early. I mean, it was, uh, I started at the American Conservative in 2006 and, you know, we were aware of it. There was a kind of theory among some dissenting conservatives that class politics should belong to the right and that the working class could or would uh, increasingly shift to the right. And that that has happened uh, to a large degree. Um, One of the problems is, uh, one... Um, the left has gone upscale, and this is a global phenomenon where parties that traditionally represented the working class uh, after the Cold War tended to shift towards the rich cities and the uh, highly educated. Uh, You saw that with the Labour Party in Britain under Tony Blair, uh, it was under the the Democrat Party in in the United States under Bill Clinton. There was a concerted effort to chase what they saw as wine track voters, right, instead of beer track voters. Um, and it's important to understand that there's there's two ways to think of class. And I think the the left wing way, uh, the the traditional Marxist uh, way of conceiving class, is going defunct. Right, so the the Marxist way of conceiving class is like about uh, your relationship to the means of production and to capital. Um, so, for the left, uh, the CEO of a, if you're a traditional Marxist, the CEO who has an extremely high salary is working class, but the owners, the stockholders, who may be who knows what they are? They might be someone in a uh, a pension plan for. They might be a school teacher in a public pension plan that owns part of the stock. That that teacher then becomes the capitalist class in some or in some way. Um, that that's ridiculous, right? The traditional way conservatives have conceived of class is that there are um, uh, classes of people who. Uh, make money just from money, right? They the what you similar to the traditional Marxist category of just capitalists, like people whose money makes money over time. Then there are people who uh, make money through their knowledge, right? Through and they are formed by educational institutions. They do professional work. Um, I would belong in that class myself because I write for a magazine uh, and receive a a a nice salary for that. Right. Um, and that journalism has moved into that echelon, uh, at least at a certain level, it used to be more working class profession. Um, and the working class, uh, is the people that work with their skills, trades, um, what they've learned or their very low skilled labor. Um, that understanding of class, I think, really helps inform things. And that's what I saw at my school board meeting. And I see it elsewhere in politics, that people that work with real things, that work with atoms, that work with uh, the deliveries rather than deliverables, um, often have a, a different attitude toward political authority uh, than people who are in a more professional class or come out of the educated elite. Uh, and that's increasingly reflected in our, our partisan difference, right? The Republicans are winning voters. Uh, you know, Republicans and Democrats switched between who was winning 
more college graduates. It used to be Republicans won college graduates. Now Democrats overwhelmingly win college graduates. Uh, and that's, I think that change is only going to uh, continue to accelerate. Um, and, and in fact, it's, it's deranging our politics because it looks, it makes um, uh, a lot of powerful institutions now um, culturally and even in business uh, now feel like they are wholly owned by progressives and by the left and that they team up with the Democratic Party, especially when it's in government power, uh, and wield incredible power over the civic space and, you know, can cancel you, whether you're, um, you know, a famous person who just happens to be, you know, an actress in a, a Disney Plus series with, and you have conservative politics, you'll be canceled. But of course, at the, like, uh, micro level, if you're just um, e- even a lower level professional, like you're a, a secretary, you could be canceled by HR, right? Like for saying the wrong thing. So I, I think that that derangement is really huge in our politics. Michael, so I, for our listeners, I, I met Michael when I was a Collegiate Network Fellow at National Review a few years ago, and um, we, we sat right next to each other. So um, I'm curious about you mentioned earlier that um, you feel like the populist among your colleagues, which you know I'm familiar with the NR environment, and I'm sure our readers probably are too. I'm curious how what you what camp would you consider yourself in? I there are ways to kind of like deduce from your written work kind of where you are, but I'd love to hear kind of how you would articulate that. Well, so when I came in, the the Great Divide was over foreign policy, and so when I started, you know almost 20 years ago, but I would have said I'm a paleoconservative, right? And I was trying to distinguish myself from neoconservatives um, at the time because we were debating about Iraq and that was that was an easy way to do that. And so paleocons were, um, you know, dissented from what was then conservative orthodoxy on foreign policy, on immigration. We were restrictionists and they, our opponents, were open borders. Um and on and some of us on trade, right? Some of us were uh, more inclined towards protecting American industries, um, and were critical of trade deals with China. And then there were those that were enthusiastic about them. So that's that's kind of the tradition I came out of. But if you ask me now, kind of a little bit more mature in in, in my age, and then a little bit um, more distant from those immediate fights, I would just say I am. I am a conservative, I am a uh, small R Republican, and I am a nationalist, Um, right? And so um, I I believe um, small R Republicanism, and that's kind of a project I'm I'm really focused on lately, is a way of unlocking some of the deadlock we find ourselves in politically, where we seem to have a... um, almost a fight between liberalism and democracy in the United States, right? There's almost, um, liberalism is often seen by its critics as, as a kind of attempt to liberate the elites from their duties, traditional duties to uh, their communities and their nations, right? To give them choice, etc. And democracy is often a way of restraining that, right? Uh, and so that that tension creates a liberal a liberal democracy. And what you've found is as liberals um, 
concentrate their power in these non-state institutions and with state institutions, there's a, a tendency to resist that. And some people have called that, well, that's illiberal democracy, right? Like where you, you use democracy to smash the liberal institutions, the way Viktor Orban is doing in Hungary, kind of break up university programs that are scaled against uh, the people in the state. You um, work to limit the power of non-governmental organizations that are seen as um, handmaidens of liberalism, by, by which they mean progressivism. Uh, but I think one way to kind of reconcile this is, you know, traditional republicanism. Uh, uh, our founders thought of themselves as republicans, and their idea of republicanism was partly um, that in a republic, unlike in a monarchy, uh, you could tie the the leadership class, the uh, the potential aristocrats and oligarchs, you could tie their interests back to the people. Um, and at the same time, you could also elevate the people through this form of government, through Republican education, right? I mean, this goes all the way back to uh, Plato and Aristotle. And uh, I think that's that's kind of where my, my focus has kind of been on is that um, Republican institutions can kind of uh, tame our elites and their kind of libidinous desires for power and, and uh, avarice. And they should also, Republican, institution, Republican institutions should also elevate uh, the mass of people so that they're not just a kind of democratic mob. They are self-governing people. They have institutions that form them, uh, elevate their desires to desire something better, to desire something good for the common weal. And um, so I think that is kind of the key missing ingredient uh, and would answer a lot of the agonies that you see on one side or the other. Because, you know, on one side you see of our political debates these days, and this tracks with populism and establishmentarianism, is the establishment is like crazy, is whining like, oh, that this, um, you know, a whole political party is against democracy, by which they mean liberalism. <laughs> right? Uh, they mean their privileges. Um, and then you have a democratic mass of people saying like the institutions are all out to get us. We're living in a kind of fake government now, or the, at least that's the temptation to think that way. Um, so you need a principle for, for reconciling and moderating these, um, these very real fights. And so I, th you know, I think, you know, I saw myself in the first, 10, 15 years of, of my career kind of elevating the idea of nationalism and, and the national principle, because uh, I thought it was being overlooked in our politics for universalism. I think between 2015 and 2020, that, that absolutely has happened, um, not just here in America, but in Europe and abroad, Brazil, Hungary, Poland, um, increasingly maybe in France, uh, the national idea is ascendant in our politics. So now I feel like I'm I'm moving to the next phase a little bit and and moving towards this idea of republicanism, which is like okay, well internally we have to mollify this uh, conflict and uh, and the wrong answer, the answer that everyone gives is one side has to lose, like the populists just have to go away, uh, and I think that's um, impossible. Michael, uh, so much food for thought in that answer. 
but I was before uh, your interview, I was rereading one of your um, I think it was a lead piece you wrote for the 10th anniversary of the American conservative back in 2012 oh, mind yeah. of the new mind of the new majority, which was your profile and interview with Pat Buchanan. Yeah. And I can definitely see given the salience. I mean, I really think that piece could have been written a week ago, right? The themes, they're the themes everyone's talking about and, you know, globalization, class conflict, you know, foreign policy interventionism. I think the difference probably between then and now is uh, probably the same difference by uh, between why you used to describe yourself as a paleocon and now you're just a conservative. I think in large part, many of your views or the views of someone like a Buchanan have have now really shifted into the mainstream of conservative thoughts. So you don't need the modifier, right? Well, yeah, yeah. Um, Rich Lowry just last week on on uh, on the National Review podcast said, "You know, Michael, you've become the moderate. <laughs> like you used to be on the edges, and now you're in the middle." Uh, and that's that's, that's that, funny. That basically is is correct, right? So yeah, I think that's right. Anyway, go on. To, yeah, no, that's a. Yeah, I would I would definitely agree with Rich's assessment there. I think one question I have for you, which I know has kind of pulled some friends in different directions, is you know at the back at kind of the American conservative crew, especially during the Obama years, lo- localism was really popular. You know, you had yeah, the yeah. front porch republic. You had before you know Patrick Deneen was. Uh, sorry, I'm, what, what is what is the name of the blog that Deneen has? I'm, it's slipping my mind. The post-liberal order, right? Before there was sort of the the, the more aggressive kind of I, I, sort of an integralism, post-liberalism. What really used to be cool was sort of the front porch republic kind of localist, very folk, uh, even anti-federalist kind of conservative yeah. thought. And that really had a home at the American conservative. And um, so I'm kind of curious, and, and it does seem like, once Trump got elected, there there became more of an interest in nationalism. Now, Pat Buchanan was always sort of a nationalist, but I, I'm curious what now you have the draw to republicanism. So what is it about the nationalist tradition? I don't know, sort of a Hamiltonian tradition that draws you more than, say, a Jeffersonian agrarianism. Well, I think Hamilton won, you know, like in that debate about what kind of a country America would become. I mean, we still have states that are more Jeffersonian than than Hamiltonian, but um, the character of our nation, you know, we became a commercial republic um, and the success of, of cities like New York as trading centers uh, in the 19th century um, has been duplicated over and over again to the success of Los Angeles as a major trading hub um, around the world. And um, so we are that we are, we, I I think Hamilton kind of won the argument, but we still have, and we're lucky and we're blessed to have um, this Jeffersonian uh, doubt about it. Right. That the, and I actually think the, the genius of the American inheritance is, is having both, um, um, both minds within us. Uh, so I tend more towards the, the kind of Hamiltonian side and, and you see this debate reflected even in foreign policy, right? So, um, for instance, Buchanan, um, Buchanan was a cold warrior, right? And many of the people that came into tech that were more of that Jeffersonian mindset, the localists, um, 
writers like Bill Kaufman. I mean, these are these are writers the listeners should check out. They were not Cold Warriors, right? We agreed on the in the post Cold War that America shouldn't be going abroad to find monsters to destroy. Uh, but in that Cold War period, nationalists like Buchanan were Cold Warriors, um, and we see that today. There's there's potentially a split on on that kind of side of the right about China, which is you know some people call it the the panda huggers versus the dragon slayers. And, um, you know, I tend more towards um, uh, seeing China as a, as a rival, uh, potentially, and not as a, just a, a peaceful trading partner in waiting in the long term. Uh, but some of my friends and, and, and closest collaborators over the last 15 years, they really see avoiding war, war with China as the, the primary goal. I mean, I, I agree with them. I just think we can do that by asserting ourselves uh, a little bit more uh, and protecting our kind of alliance system in the Pacific. But other people would like to see the alliance system in the Pacific as a potential cause for a war with China. So that that debate is going to come up on the right in the next 10 years, I think, in a really big way. Um, but yeah, I've, I've, anyway, I've identified with the, the nationalist side, but, you know, there is a Jeffersonian spirit and I've, I've even felt it in myself at times, especially when I was younger. Um, you know, the um, because peace is the greatest good, right? I mean, uh, and war is the worst hell. Um, and that is something that I, I take too from uh, that piece you mentioned, The Mind of the New Majority by Buchanan. I mean, the kind of conclusion of that piece is that um, the two world wars destroyed Western civilization, Right in in the way uh, Pat conceives it in his own mind, uh, and then what has been left over after the two world wars is a, a kind of a culture war where uh, you could almost say that uh, the the two world wars, the horror of them inspired a lot of the um, the desire for complete cultural revolution. Right. Um, because if this was Western, if Western culture led to these horrors, we have to get away from it. Um, and, and I think as conservatives, we need to recognize that, uh, we need to recognize that that is an impetus on, uh, some of the left, right. Is just an impetus. I think a lot of us share. Um, and, uh, and so that leaves in, in Pat's mind and in his writing and in, the the politics of the uh, mid to late 20th century that left this uh, core uh, of Americans, uh, many of the middle class, uh, ethnic whites, uh, that left them as a vessel for preserving American civilization in, in Pat's eyes. So yeah, that was a, that was a fun piece to write. It was, it was great to kind of talk with Pat and um, kind of what what we did was we kind of just went through his books and kind of reviewed uh, his history as a thinker and, and got some colorful thoughts on, on how he'd viewed the passing scene. Um, so yeah, and I'm grateful for that, having the opportunity to do that forever. Michael, I'm going to plug your book. My father left me Ireland in this question. And um, yeah, I, I, I read the book um, probably when it first came out, I think so it was a few years ago. And I'm curious how writing that book and experiencing it, obviously, how did the themes of 
in your considerations of place, home, localism, and heritage influence how you wrote that book? Yeah, well, I mean, the book is, My Father Left Me Ireland is kind of part biography. It, it's, it tells the story of growing up without my father uh, here in America, and my father was in Ireland. He is Irish. And then what this left as a residue in my my life and in my relationship with my mother. And um, what I wanted to uh, communicate in that book was uh, that a lot of us uh, presently have grown up uh, with this sense of being orphaned, even orphaned by history, um, right? That um, whether in my case, literally not having a parental figure there, but also... um, I think generally the parental principle has in a sense been totally effaced in our culture. Right. And that parents themselves are very tempted to almost take a, a too libertarian approach with their children. Right. Like there's no, they don't want to impose an inheritance on them culturally, religiously. Um, they don't, they don't want to, um, they want to set their kids free to find their own meaning, right? And uh, what I wanted to write in that book was that often this search leads to um, chaos, doubt, um, and a kind of bereavement uh, that um, uh, that the end of history can be a place where you're marooned, um, not where you're you're perfectly free, right? Because to to be um, uh, the the problem, right, and it's a problem almost at the heart of of modern identity, right, is this idea that um, if you're going to be free to be who you really are, like the end of that process, right, if there is no reference outside to uh, a coherent story, right, whether that's a Christian story of a soul known before God or a man in his community or in his family, if you're just free to, to make up the own meaning of your life at the end of that process, if, if it could be successful, you would be a subject known only to themselves. Right. And the, the a subject known subjectively, right. You would, you would, um, it, it would provide no connection to other people. It, it would, it might not even make sense to other people. What, the meaning of your life was. Um, And in fact, I think that's part of what we're seeing in identity politics chaos, especially on the sexual level is precisely that, right? Like um, that's why you can log on to TikTok and see people um, pronouncing like the, 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 the 45,000th sexual identity version of themselves, right? Semi, demi, hemi, uh, asexual, uh, whatever, Denny boys or something. I, I don't know. Um, but on, on the personal level, um, we are social creatures and, um, and our, our, I wanted to write about how on a human level, we need our history. We need our bonds. Uh, and we feel that need primordially. Uh, and it can't always be satisfied. I mean, my story has, 
a happy enough ending, right? Where my father and I reconcile as adults and begin to understand each other. And I began to understand his uh, longing for me, kind of the, 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 um, which I think someone should write a book from the other side of that perspective, not necessarily my father, but from that perspective of a generation that didn't live up to its uh, best ideals uh, for their children. Um, But yeah, I, I wrote about how, um, you know, this Irish connection that I had and the way my mother kind of embedded it in our family life um, gave me access to a whole universe of feeling and understanding and self and including self-understanding, but, but moving beyond that. Right. So she would sing these um, rebel ballads and, and things like that. And um, give me glimpses of the Irish language and the history of Ireland that connected me to a real place with a real history (laughs) and not just a real place with a real history, but coming with it, um, potentially a set of values that were very counter cultural to the ones I was raised in, in the, you know, in the end of history in the 1990s. Right. So, uh, values like, uh, valor or doggedness and, um, self-sacrifice, right? Um, you know, uh, one of the kind of hero figures in that book and of Irish histories is Patrick Pierce. And he literally is a, a nationalist who founds a school and, uh, he writes a letter to the parents of the school and it's kind of unthinkable, right? This was 19, 14 and he's writing letter to the parents of the school saying like he dreamed he saw one of the boys of his school standing on the gallows and that he was going to die for some august cause ireland's or another and that he admired the boy because in this dream the entire crowd was uncomprehending of his sacrifice and viewed him as a fool and uh, that he explained that the whole point of his education was to form boys to be uh, strong, proud, valorous, and yet to also be willing to throw their life away for a good cause. Um, that is so countercultural to what I was brought up in, right? And it is also, it's a form of extremism in itself that, that has its own dangers. I, I want to put that out there. Um, a lot of Irish boys died unnecessarily for an august cause uh, as well. But he, um, anyway, that, that, that uh, culture, that, uh, that aspiration was like a kind of tonic in a way of almost a way of healing sort of those uh wounds, right? That I think a lot of young people feel where they feel that their freedom that their parents have notionally given them to define themselves is a kind of abandonment, right? It is a kind of being a form of being marooned somewhere without a guide. Um, and I, and I think a lot of people have, have felt that way, is that especially as that they leave college and go into the uh, working world and they don't know how to 
you know, form their lives. They don't know how to prioritize work versus family. They don't know how to prioritize a lot in their lives. And, uh, they find the traditional sources unavailable to them, whether they, you know, they weren't raised in churches and, and their families won't give it to them. Uh, but it's out there. You just have to go searching. Michael, on that note of going searching, I'm curious what practical advice you'd have for, let's say, one of our college students. You're probably say, 20 years older than most of our college students. I'm about 10 years older. Think Just thinking about, you know, for you, you had... Even if your childhood was imperfect in many ways, you had this Irish, these traditions, right? Yeah. That you were able to appeal to. You know, I know for my father, who's in his 60s, he had the Polish traditions that he grew up with that pro- probably did, some, you know, a similar thing. But let's say you're, you know, a college student today and you realize you have no inheritance. You, I don't know, you were raised in the suburbs and you didn't really, you're grasping for something in liquid modernity, but you don't have it. So, where can a young college student turn to begin to kind of recover something they yeah they might not have whatsoever well one thing to remember is that tradition is not here's something that i'd love to to work on and to explain so people who feel disconnected from the idea of tradition well tradition isn't like a um a static state that just uh falls to the force of entropy over time, right? Tradition is a living process of recovery uh, within the circumstances you're in. So when you turn to something, you may have been raised in liquid modernity in the suburbs and, you know, you might be a nun, uh, N-O-N-E, you can still turn to a source of tradition, whether it's um, one part of your family's ethnic background or religious background that you turn to. Uh, but if none of that appeals to you right away, I would say my first bit of advice is find someone or some place where great love is being poured out. And that might be one of your professors and it might be even one of your most progressive professors, but if they truly love their subject and their field of study, right, that is going to enkindle something in you and inspire something in you um, that will apply throughout your life. It may be that you just find, you, you almost sneakily, you know, you take a class in Herodotus and your professor um, in my case, this was James Rom at Bard College. You catch your professor almost weeping at a certain passage. That is a good sign for you to get in that professor's office hours and get deeper into that subject with them. Um, because where there's, you know, where there is that great love and passion, you're going to see that professor's example of, um, you know, the the devotion and sacrifice they've given to their studies. Uh, and that's a healthful, rejuvenating thing. Uh, an example to take into other areas of your life. Um, and, and I think that is how someone can l- begin to learn almost the habits of piety, which are applicable to not just your studies, but to, your health and well-being personally, right? Like instead of falling in for every bit of wellness garbage um, that's out there, you could 
you could learn the kind of habits of restraint uh, and devotion that lead to a healthful life. Uh, personally, it can lead to you know a good attitude toward a future marriage uh, or career, and um, or some other subject that enthralls you. Um, so yeah, where, wherever there's great love attached to something real, right. Uh, attached to, um, a real thing. Um, and I think that, that would ground you. I mean, oh, and almost anything in life where you could pour out love, um, it could be anything. It could be a, it could be a home garden is actually going to lead you as you go deeper into it. And if you're a literate, engaged human, it's going to lead you to deeper places it's going to and it's going to lead you to real knowledge of uh the world around you right like you, you could look at your home garden and suddenly learn about you know how fertilizer is turned into this global racket that somehow russia controls uh, or you could learn about the traditions and meaning of gardens in uh england and france in uh, the early modern period and what that meant or how the Chinese hated gardens and actually tried to tear them up as bourgeois ornaments uh, and anti uh, anti worker sentimentality. Um, so anyway, it, it, anything can lead you to the inheritance of Western civilization. But the, I think the surest guide is to find someone who's pouring love and passion into it from any angle. Michael, our last question might actually, it's a really, it's a really good uh, transition to this last question because I, I suspect it'll probably draw a lot on what you just said, but we want to ask you what we ask all of our guests, which is how you would define conservatism. Uh, I'm, conservatism is a disposition towards an inheritance, right? It is, um, it is fundamentally a position of gratitude uh toward our civilizational inheritance, right? It is, um, you know, liberalism is a theory of rights and communism is a theory of history. Uh, so they're, they're not even the same thing, right? And conservatism is not the same thing. It's not an ideology of, of how to construct society. It is the political expression of, of gratitude joined with, um, an awareness of our limits and our imperfectibility as human beings. And that's, that's a very standard answer. And it's very standard because, and it's durable for a reason because it's just true. Um, and, um, and, you know, it's, um, you know, I don't, I don't think one aspires to be a conservative in, in, in um in any real sense i mean there are obviously conservatives i admired but it, it is um something that's elicited from us uh because of the challenges this uh inheritance faces uh our own our own neglect of it or threats from beyond and outside of it um that's all true um and when when a Marxist or a liberal or progressive accuses a conservative of just being a defensive privilege, I think you could just say guilty as charged, right? Like I'm, uh, I am privileged. I am privileged to live at the end of this great chain of history, uh, to have um, 
uh, all the uh, mythology of the Levant, of ancient Greece and Rome and all of Europe um, kind of poured into my culture and that it might have begun to enter me only when, you know, my mother started singing Baba Black Sheep, right? Like that is the the beginning of this process of, of transmitting this great inheritance to the next generation. Um, you know, it is my, you know, six-year-old daughter, seven-year-old daughter plunking out Ode to Joy on the piano just with one hand. Um, that is Western civilization. It's a great gift. Uh, it's worth preserving. Um, it's in need of, de- of a defense. Um, and beyond that, all the other ideological, ideological stuff, right? The, the political debates about should we be paleocons or neocons or, or anything else that kind of pales in comparison, right? That, um, it's important and it's, um, it's part of being a conservative is having those debates about what the present actually requires. But um, ultimately conservatism is about being undiluted about humanity, right? That we are not taken in by the, the foolish idea that just with prodding and pulling, we can actually transform humanity into something else, right? Into some other, new Soviet man or um, new socialist man who's going to have completely different and angelic relations with every other human on earth. Uh, That's a fantasy. Um, What we can do is, is make things manageable and tolerable as possible and even pleasant, right? And um, we are a defensive home, and our homes are a place of refuge, but they're also a place of real challenges and and occasionally even fights and squabbles. Um, and so that's why I think home is kind of our best metaphor on the right, right? Is that um, everyone, I think, even, even someone who feels orphaned by history or by even by their own family, I think has an intuitive inbuilt inbuilt understanding of the idea of what a home is or can be. Uh, and it, like I said, it's, it's both a place of refuge, but it's also a place of formation and challenge and occasional conflict. But a, a home <laughs> uh, can't be defined exclusively by conflict either, or else it's, it is torn apart, right? Any uh, house divided it against itself will fall. So anyway, that's, that's conservatism for me. Michael, you're, you're remarkably consistent because two years ago, when I asked you to write an essay on what is conservatism, I've actually got the concluding sentence here. You conclude with this attempt at making a home implants in us a longing for the true home that can never be destroyed. We put in our labors to preserve freedom, decency, and culture so that our children receive this somewhere as a place prepared for them by their fathers. Yeah, that's, I, yeah, I said it better when I had time to write it than extemporaneously. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that, that is the idea, right? Like we can't perfect this home, but it can be, there are moments where your home life, if you are open to this, if you look at it, it can be transfigured into 
a vision of of heaven um now i think and i think that um fact about our our reality about our 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 lives as finite creatures with kind of infinite um capacity to wonder um i think that is what kind of drives the left's fantasy of like maybe we can transform this world into something redeemed and beyond uh hurt or pain right like that's the fantasy of of the left is this perfectibility of man on earth i don't think we can get there uh and i think actually part of the conservative project yeah is to make this home habitable and and defensible right to make it something that yes is a source of refuge but is also a place from from out of which you would venture off and become the hero of a story right right to defend it in battle uh to defend it uh with poetry or song or uh whatever you have to give um so yeah that's that's our our job is is in, in a way to um to to border on the idolatrous to to sanctify this uh this nation and this place we've been given well on that note of home michael thanks for coming on the show. If people are interested in following your work or reading your writing, where can they find you? Uh, they can find me at National Review. I am uh, writing there always. I'm also frequently on the editor's podcast out of National Review. And yeah, my my book, Father, My Father Left Me Ireland, is still probably in stores somewhere uh, and can be found. Please buy it up. And yeah, thank you so much. It was great to be with you both. Thanks for joining. Thanks, Michael. Thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations with ISI. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to head over to isi.org slash resources to see all that we offer our members, including the Intercollegiate Review, Select Modern Age Articles, ISI Books, and of course, this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate and review, and we will see you next time on Conservative Conversations with ISI. Conservative Conversations with ISI.